I always like to say that really there were four revolutions, all of which were about energy. The first one is uh, where we learned to kill things at a distance, uh, and that's you know control of kinetic energy. Mm-hmm. So your next revolution, which was all about energy, was agriculture. Um, and of course, that allowed the population of the planet to grow by a very vast amount. And then it became clear, actually, that you couldn't survive with agriculture without more mechanization. Sorry. Right. So then you got the Industrial Revolution. And so each revolution, of course, solved the problems that the last revolution had created yes. and created new problems that had to be solved by the next one. And so, you know, we're in, if you like, the sustainable energy revolution, which is in some sense trying to un- solve the problems that were created by uh, the Industrial Revolution. But as you just pointed out, yes. that will probably generate its own problems. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, and which are uh, as yet things that we haven't seen. Uh, and sometime in 50 or 100 years, we'll have to start dealing with those and there'll be some, some new set of things that we will, that we will mm-hmm. have to do. Hello and welcome to David Talks With. I'm your host, David John. Today, I'm at the University of Chicago with a truly special guest a physicist whose work has spanned the vast realm of condensed matter, energy solutions, and even the intricate complexities of the human brain. He's been at the realm of one of the world's leading research institutions as the director of the Argonne National Laboratory and currently the chair of the physics department at the University of Chicago. His work is not confined to the subatomic or the galactic. He's also ventured into the enigmatic world of neuroscience, exploring the very fabric of our thoughts and consciousness. We're pleased to welcome Professor Peter Littlewood. Thank you. Good morning, David. It's a pleasure to be here. You've worked in uh, both condensed matter and material science and as well as neuroscience. How do these fields relate together? Um, let me tell you a little bit about how physics works, actually, because I'm a physicist. I'm a theoretical physicist. Most people who think about theoretical physics think that you know our goal is to understand the fundamental laws about how the universe works. And of course, we do. But there are two directions to go for that. One is to try and study cosmology, uh, you know, the, the, the fundamental equations about how uh, all, all the particles in the universe are constructed. Uh, but there's another direction, which is to say, suppose I actually know the rules. Mm-hmm. Can you explain how the things that we see come about because of simple rules? So you know, everything that we see on our planet really depends on is a solution of Schrodinger's equation. Mm-hmm. fundamental equation of quantum mechanics. Uh, and just given this simple equation, uh, in principle, then you should be able to predict everything that we see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you think about the phenomena that we see, they're sort of extraordinary. They um, uh, range from all of the materials that we work with, uh, their fundamental properties, uh, and strange, what we call collective phenomena. Mm-hmm. And I would say most of my work is associated with take, taking very simple rules and understanding how they can produce complex phenomena. And that complex phenomena can be materials, it can be what we call statistical physics, the way that uh, 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 things work thermally, or in fact, I think it can also be neuroscience. Mm-hmm. And so that's how those are related. I can maybe tell you a little bit more about some of that. That is very interesting, especially um, where you said how the Schrodinger equation is capable of predicting um, everything essentially that's going on in our universe. Um, why is that? Well, of course, we don't know that. 
Really, but but that's the evidence we have, actually. So quantum mechanics is probably the best tested theory Mm -hmm. that there ever has been. Uh, It's a weird theory. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's it's very unusual. It's very unexpected. uh, But it's actually very well tested. uh, And so uh, it really seems to work. Um, Mm -hmm. but, um, but But the interesting challenge with it is that if I just give you the equation, Mm-hmm. Uh, there are so many possible solutions to that equation that it's almost impossible for it to be directly predicted. So the uh, um, so you know because matter becomes entangled very quickly. If I take two quantum particles and put them together, there are many ways of doing that. If I have four particles, it becomes exponentially larger. If I have eight particles, it becomes completely impossible. And if I just take you know. Uh, a cubic meter of the air in this room uh, to actually solve the equations to predict what would be going on for that is completely unthinkable. Yes. So, so the uh, so the range of possibilities is is amazing. Yes. So the computational cost in that sense right. goes up exponentially. Right. Making yeah. only applying the equation unfeasible. Right. Okay. Yeah. So then, what we do, of course, is that we build um, other kinds of models at different levels. Um, and a lot of what we focus on is things that um, have interesting collective phenomena. Mm-hmm. That, so you put lots of identical things together and you get out more than the sum of the parts. No, simple example is you, know, you can actually make a solid. Yeah. You put atoms together and they can crystallize and they order and they, they produce a, a solid materials phase. And of course, Almost everything that we depend upon uses that. But it's actually fascinating that that even happens. So um, I'm sitting here not very far away from Lake Michigan. uh, And in a few months' time, there's going to be ice on the lake. Uh, So we're familiar and used to the idea that when um, water cools down, it freezes. But that's, in fact, unexpected. Why doesn't it just get thicker? That is true. Yes. Why, why, so, why, why is there, you know, a, what we call a phase transition, something that happens abruptly at a fixed temperature where something changes state from one, one uh, state to another, from liquid to solid? And uh, uh, that's actually a uh, complex and fundamental problem to understand why that would happen. And then, of course, that then shows up in lots of things, not just water and ice, but many other different kinds of materials. Yes, I see. Yeah, um, and uh, then if you want to be bold about that, you can extend those ideas to thinking about neuroscience. Mm-hmm. When you're thinking, there are you know patterns forming in your brain, um, and how and, and how do those regular patterns get set up? You know, your your brain actually consists of very large numbers of cells, uh, you, know, uh, you know, you know, trillions of cells. Uh, huge numbers of connections, um, but nonetheless, the uh, consciousness, speaking, thinking, involves setting up patterns in that that are kind of self-sustaining. And one of the ways that we can th- uh, think about how the brain works is with models which are really related to uh, the statistical physics about how materials go solid. Of course, it's very different in detail, but it has some core features in, in general, in the way you want to think about those problems. I see. So 
then as a whole condensed matter would that be the study of um how would you define condensed matter ah very good well okay so firstly it's condensed so of course matter could just be atoms they could be separated um so condensed actually means what happens when individual particles quantum particles come together and operate collectively so i put atoms together in a box and they can have a liquid or a solid uh um uh i could put nucleons together in a nucleus. Mm-hmm. And that's also uh, you know, an interacting many-body problem. So if you look at a nucleus, uh, they're a little bit difficult to look at, but you could do experiments to see them. Um, you know, they may contain very many protons and very many neutrons, but actually the collective behavior of all of that is not that you see the neutrons or the protons, you actually see the nucleus. So, all, so those are examples of what we would call condensed matter, which is the if you like, the, the collective behavior, the order that comes about when you put together uh, simple things. I see. So it would span... Um, well, then, well, then technically, could you say that uh, condensed matter is at the core of physics? Or, or, or well, I think it's one aspect of the core of physics, right? So because mm-hmm. there's... Uh, um, I mean, there are lots of examples. So condensed matter, by the way, is the probably the largest subdiscipline of physics. Wow. Right. And some of that is associated with the fact that it's a lot of everyday stuff and a lot of it is practical, right? So, you know, it's involves semiconductor physics and material science and all of the things that, that we're that we're used to. So it's a uh it's it's sort of widely used everywhere. Um uh and you know it embodies what I was saying at the beginning when one of the core features of physics is that you start with simple ingredients and produce complex things. Right. Um, uh, and uh, I don't think I'd call uh, cosmology condensed matter physics, but it has the same kind of style. Right. So, you know, you see structure in the universe. How does this structure happen? Because you have individual units which are doing their own thing. Um, uh, and, you know, and you know, we, we think about... Um, Stuff as a kind of a, a collective uh, interaction of lots of small quantum degrees of freedom. So condensed matter would be a study that hybridizes both the theoretical and the practical. It does, yeah. So I mean, so I, I'm a uh, I am a theorist, but all of my life I've worked on things that are I hope potentially useful. I mean, as you mentioned, I was. Uh, director of Argonne National Lab for a few years. Uh, and Argonne, of course, is one of those places that really takes a lot of the fundamental science into practice. So the history of Argonne, by the way, is that it was founded after the Second World War uh, to invent nuclear power. Mm-hmm. Now, following the, uh, uh, you know, the, the construction of the first atomic pile, actually about 100 meters from here, not very far by Enrico Fermi and his friends uh, in this, um, then it became clear that one could use nuclear uh, nuclear reactions not just to make bombs, but also to make energy. Yes. Right. And so that was what happened at Argonne uh, and, uh, and then at the starting of that. And, and, um, and of course, from that point on, Argonne became an energy lab. And so Argonne now is a broad lab studying uh, studying materials, but in particular materials associated with the energy transition. They're particularly famous for their work on batteries. Uh, 
but they also have big experimental tools to look inside materials. There's a large so-called synchrotron. This is a um, kilometer circumference ring that accelerates electrons to very close to the speed of light and uses them to generate x-rays so that you can uh, look inside materials. So, so the, so there's a very close connection between, you know, the study of materials and, of course, practical uses. And uh, one of the things that I've been obsessed about, of course, uh, is trying to improve energy technologies to help with the energy transition. Let's elaborate on that. So how do you envision um, energy transition to be, I would say, improved or enhanced in the future? Well, you know, it, it, it's, it's actually quite hard and quite complicated, right? So... Um, uh, if you, th I mean, let's imagine we were successful, mm -hmm. uh, and let's imagine we were successful by 2050, and then you would ask, you know, what would um, everything look like? Well, firstly, everything would run off electricity. Yes, and the electricity would be generated by solar or wind or maybe nuclear or maybe a few other things. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, and of course, in order to have that, you need. Um, uh, electrical transmission, and you also need electrical storage. So electrical storage involves batteries, and we're used to the idea of batteries these days, that, that of course, with battery electric vehicles, but it's really only the start. You know, we need uh, in our lives uh, all kinds of chemicals yes, and other methods of storage, and most of those chemicals at the moment are made by uh, uh, you know, very energy-inefficient thermal processes. So a good one yes. is uh, we like to make ammonia. We like to make ammonia mostly because it's used uh, as input to make fertilizers for food. Um, but we make ammonia by heating up uh, um, methane and water and steam uh, uh, and nitrogen to very high temperatures in, uh, in a process which was invented just over a century ago, the Harbour-Bosch yes. process. Um, and... We that that process uses uh, 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 about five percent of the world's natural gas and generates about one percent of the world's CO two emissions. That has to be changed and it has to be replaced by something else, which will probably be an electrochemical process, which will do that. Um, so we have to invent that. Yes. Uh, right. Um, you know, another one which is less obvious is uh, electronics, IT. Mm -hmm. um, information technology is using an increasingly large amount of energy. It's actually growing very rapidly, the amount. So this is, you know, all the uh, YouTube videos and the uh, artificial intelligence algorithms and all of the data storage. Yeah. Uh, um, it's literally melting the permafrost. Mm -hmm. Right, because there's a tendency to put uh, uh, data centers in places which are cold because you generate yeah. a lot of heat and you need to cool it. Right. You know? um, so, uh, so we need to cut that. And this actually connects, if you like, back to neuroscience because um, uh, the efficiency of a, uh, of, of a computer chip is about six orders of magnitude worse than the theoretical limit. Wow. Right. That's, okay. So, the, so the theoretical bad. limit is defined actually by sort of microscopic physics, um, and even though you don't use much energy to switch a, a bit, uh, you could do it six orders of magnitude better. 
in principle. Of course, we don't know how to get there. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we will get there through uh, you know, different kinds of architectures. Um, and that actually gets you to thinking about the brain. And that's how I started thinking about neuroscience. I see. Because it's, the brain is efficient. The brain is, in some sense, well, yeah, in some sense, very energy efficient somehow. You know, you know a yeah. human brain runs on 20 or 30 watts. Yeah. Uh, Argon, um, the lab that, that I know very well, uh, has, you know, one of the largest computers on the planet mm-hmm. for doing it, right? Uh, and that runs on about 10 megawatts. And it's arguably nowhere near as smart as a human brain. Yeah. So, so the, so we need to think about different architectures to crack these problems. And that's a, another one of those. So there's a whole host of, uh, problems that we will have to solve that don't obviously feel as if they're about energy, but in the end, they really are. Yes. Right. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, and that actually means, uh, as well as a lot more regulation, we turn out turns out we need a lot more science. That is true. Yeah. So, some people might say that, oh, well, um, this, is, this is more of an engineering issue to construct the architecture appropriate for different models for computation. Um, would you say it's a matter of both? I, well, I think it's always a matter of both. In fact, there's there's really not much boundary in my view between engineering and science. Um, uh, it's often the case, by the way, that the engineering comes first and the science comes later. Mm-hmm. The steam engine was invented before the science of thermodynamics. And in fact, the science of thermodynamics uh, came about because people studied steam engines. So um, so all of these things typically go hand in hand. Interesting. So it's different from what people might expect. It's not the theory guiding the practical, but... Sometimes it could be the other way around. It could be the other way around. It can bounce backwards and forwards. And that's one of the reasons why it's quite ex- quite exciting to be a scientist in this kind of area, because you can see things applied and then you learn things that are kind of unexpected. Right? So the, um, uh, and, and so there's an interplay, not just a theory and experiment, but there's an interplay of theory and experiment and engineering and design. That's fascinating. Yeah. So then what you would want to avoid in this case is to have your minds constrained by uh, the theoretical. Yeah. Would you right. say so? Yeah, I think so. So I think you don't want to be, you, you don't want to be constrained by narrow sets of ideas, right? Um, so, you know, the advantage we have, we live in a world which is extremely complex. So there's a lot of stuff to study and a lot of it has things to teach us. Right? Um so I happen to think that biology can teach us principles which are useful in physics because biology has been experimenting for a billion years about how to get things done. That's true. Um, so, and we're relatively new to this game. So biology has learned principles, actually, uh, that are associated with the structure and the organization and, in fact, the building of theories. Could you give an example of how uh, biology has perhaps inspired the development of physics? Yeah, I think so. So, um, uh, no, um, you know, in many ways, it, it, it goes goes back a long way. You can pick, you know you can pick a few things. Um, uh, microscopy mm-hmm. was first applied to biology. And it was it was of interest uh, only because of biology. More recently, since everybody's minds are on AI these days, 
Yes. Artificial intelligence and those mechanisms were really inspired by thinking about how uh, biological synapses work, the connections in the brain that fire and learn. Um, and that stimulated thinking about statistical physics models, actually, of uh, you know, what, get, what then became called neural networks. I see. Right. So, uh, and so there was a mathematics literature and a physics literature on that for a very long time, stimulated by biology, mm-hmm. that eventually morphed over time to what we think of as you know, deep learning and those algorithms. Yes. But I think you would never have got there, or you would never have started out there, if you didn't have models of biology to teach you about that. So there is a lot to observe from the nature around us and the mechanisms. So, yeah. They operate in. That's very sensible. Yeah, I, I would say that the um, most of what we have today would be, um, in some sense, an emulation of the biological structures around us. Yep. It, it, yeah. Um, think, think about motion. Think about planes. Think about um, communication. About signal transmission. All of these have biological inspirations in them. They do. Right. So. Um, and by the way, probably you know the one that I left out, which, which is sort of an interesting history, is that um, the discovery of electricity came about because of experiments in biology. Mm. So, so um, you know, uh, famous experiments of Galvani with frogs' legs mm-hmm. um, were uh, then you know realized to be associated with uh, electrical circuits. That's and, fan- but, 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 right. and you know, you uh-huh. tend not to think of uh, animals as electrical machines, but we are electrical machines. We have wires going through us, they're electrical circuits. And in fact, true. the way we really discovered what electricity is, the way that the battery was invented, because indeed they discovered that they could make the frog's leg jerk by connecting it to uh, external sources of power. Um, uh, and that was actually the first design of the first battery. Um, uh, and so the whole of electrical science came because of uh, you know, fundamental observations in biology. Yes, that is very mind-boggling. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I, I tend to not see organisms as computers, but in, in, a, in a high sense, um, they are. We are uh, large, large computers that are right. extremely complex right. and diverse. Right, so you know, you know we, we, we have evolved to be able to solve problems, particular classes of problems. Um, and one of the things that some of my colleagues like to think about in this context is, uh, you know, is, is how do you evolve to be able to solve problems and to be continuing to be able to solve problems better and better. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, you know, uh, the structure of what we are is embedded in DNA, but DNA is just a, a lookup table for how to build something. Yes. Um, and how you encode that, uh, uh, you're really encoding for some physical function. Mm-hmm. So the, the um, uh, uh, and of course, to be able to control the physical world, and of course, what humans do very well is that they control energy. Yeah. I mean, the, the reason that our species is dominant on the planet is that we have learned how to exploit energy more effectively than anybody else. And we are improving on that skill day by day. Day by day, yeah. of course, and unfortunately, using more and more of it as we do that. Yeah, but um, but 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 um, but no, but we are actually uh, thinking machines. 
mm-hmm. we are first and foremost actually machines. Mm-hmm. So the um, you know the you know one of the big initial skills, of course, that that um, humans develop early on um, was the ability to throw things. Yes, because that enables you to have action at a distance. Yes. Right. So um, uh, and. Uh, almost no other animal can actually do that, and certainly none can do it very well. Um, you know, so our ability to throw a spear also enables to enables us to throw a baseball very well. You yeah. know, monkeys can't throw baseballs very well. No. So, so the so so the um, but it is you know, the control of our environment which we've learned. So we so we're you know tied up together with all of those things. Yes. Well, as well as the control of ourselves um, yeah. through the mind. And how it empowers the body to make actions. Yeah. Um, let's talk more about energy. So, yeah. well, the energy consumption rate for humanity has gone up exponentially right. in the past uh, 200 years, I would say, well, since the Industrial Revolution. Do you think this trend will continue or will it reach a plateau? Well, I think it's certainly already showing signs of reaching a plateau. So, one of the positive things to be said is that. As less developed countries industrialize, it turns out that their energy consumption uh, goes up less vertiginously than it did in the Industrial Revolution in the West. Yes. <coughs> um, uh, but nonetheless, it is true that um, uh, it, no, it's almost certainly the case that um, uh, you know, if uh, you know, people are going to get rich, and I think we would like that everywhere, they will consume yes. more energy. It's um, inevitable. So it's, it's it's somehow inevitable. We can be more efficient about the way we consume that energy. But I think the other thing to say actually is that energy itself isn't the problem. There's a lot of it around. Yes. If you just um, start from the top, you know, the energy coming into the planet is all from solar radiation, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, there's um, uh, you know, you know, four to five orders of magnitude more solar radiation hitting the earth than we need to use for energy consumption. Yes. So um, so there's an abundance of energy which is available from solar and wind in principle, right? So the um uh so 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 just using that energy um and of course using that energy is actually benign because since the earth is in equi- equilibrium with the universe uh, if you use the energy that comes from the sun, uh, you don't actually heat the earth up in doing that, right? Because, um, the, you know, the uh, very hot energy, if you like, comes in from the sun and much, uh, much cooler energy is radiated back from the earth. And those two things are in balance, right? So just the consumption of energy, uh, doesn't matter. I mean, the reason, of course, we have, uh, uh, climate change is because if as a byproduct of consuming that energy, you generate more CO2 in the atmosphere, yeah. you change the set point about where those two, uh, those two s- systems have become into equilibrium uh, and make us just hotter on the ground because there's more, more absorption in the, in the air above us. Um, but, um, uh, no, the, the, um, but we're not short of energy by any means. Do you think there is a need to acquire more energy then, or should we live with the sufficient amounts? And well, I mean, I, I think the the um, uh, 
There I don't know. I mean, I don't think we're going to need much more energy. Um, and um, the, uh, as I say, there's in principle enough in sunshine to power the, the, the world many, 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 many times over. Um, it might be, for example, that we want to use slightly less energy efficient processes so that we can do things more sustainably. So, um, uh, you know, I talked about the Harbour Bosch process. I could present, I could potentially replace that by something that could be done at a much smaller scale involving solar electrochemistry to do this. Yes. Um, right. Uh, you know, after all, you know, peas and beans have figured out how to do this. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not particularly efficient, it turns out. Right. Um, but there's enough energy from sunlight uh, that one can imagine doing that um, in a sort of less efficient process, right? So that the, um, so my hope actually is that energy uh, eventually becomes free. Yes. Is that our technologies get good enough um, that, you know, that, that energy is no longer, a, uh, energy is no longer a cost. It's actually uh, in some sense a free resource because it comes from outer space. Then do you think the ability to produce energy independently, like via uh, nuclear sources or through um, the burning of coal, do you think that would still be necessary uh, had we achieved those those technologies that allow us to maintain equilibrium with our nature? I don't think I, I don't think um, uh, in the long run. I think I think there's no need for fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. Right. The question about whether you want to use nuclear energy, of course, nuclear energy is, um, uh, again, not, no, uh, is carbon neutral. Yes. Right. Um, the, um, uh, and so it, no, doesn't suffer from those problems, but we've made nuclear energy very expensive. Yes. So would you say that as civilization eventually progresses, our need for energy would increase or would it maintain the same? Um, like uh, people or um, cosmologists like mm -hmm. to qualify uh, civilization on the basis of energy usage um, or, uh, as right. one of the primary indicators. And for example, harnessing the energy we receive on our planet, our sun um, from our solar system and eventually yeah. beyond that. Um, do you think do you think that's a necessary assumption or I well I I don't know it sounds some of this is sort of in the realm of science fiction I think y yes that, right. that is true. Uh, so I mean so the question is what do you want to do right so um uh you know I think you know a few billion of us can live comfortably on this planet with all of our needs yeah with with more or less the same energy consumption we have now now um if you say I want to go forth and colonize the universe Mm -hmm. uh, and I want to launch a lot of stuff into space and I want to build Dyson spheres and things like yeah. this. And I want to go to a different level of civilization. That's going to take a lot more energy. That is. Right. So, um, uh, I, you know, no, that's a future that I, that I can't predict. Well, and it won't be an easy one. Nobody can. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, is it, no, you know, as far as we can tell, there aren't so many civilizations out there doing that kind of stuff, or at least if they are, they're hiding very effectively. Yeah, well, the Fermi paradox in, yes. in that sense. Yes. Um, th th that does sort of touch into the realm of uh, science fiction. Yeah. You 
try to imagine the future of humanity, which is quite unpredictable. But science fiction has also served like as a beacon towards scientific development in, 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 a, in a yeah yeah in an indirect sense. No, well, I mean, I, I mean, I think often in science fiction, there's a um, the, the, you know, it, the, there's an opportunity to think through um, actually cultural events which may be coming. Yes. Uh, not so much the uh, actual science. Um, uh, it's hard to find many cases where, um, you know, where you know, where, where sort of vast new science is actually being predicted, right? So, so, um, um, but thinking about the culture of this, so um, uh, you know, a great one which we're coming up now is we have to think about robots. Yes. Right. Well, people in science fiction have been thinking about um, uh, the legal and cultural consequences of uh, robotics and AI uh, for, a, uh, for a very long time. Um, and now we have to face it uh, in mm-hmm. terms of things that we've constructed. Mm-hmm. And inevitably, we will commit mistakes. We will struggle in mm-hmm. the process, but uh, right. and eventually, hopefully, we will succumb. Well, we, no, we'll, we'll see. I mean, so that I think the, um, you know, if you look at how the human race has developed on the planet, I always like to say that really there were um, uh, you know, four revolutions, all of which were about energy. Yes. The first one is uh, where we learned to kill things at a distance, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, uh, and that's you know control of kinetic energy. Yes. Um, uh, and of course, we were so efficient at doing that that we killed off probably all <laughs> many of the large fauna, mm-hmm. uh, and the hunter-gatherer lifestyle wasn't going to work. So you mm-hmm. so your next revolution, which was all about energy, was agriculture. Yes. Right. Okay. Um, and of course, that allowed the population of the planet to grow by a very vast amount. And then it became clear, actually, that you couldn't survive with agriculture without more mechanization. Sorry. Right. So then you got the industrial revolution that we think of. But as you just pointed out, yes. that will probably generate its own problems, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and which are uh, as yet things that we haven't seen. Uh, and sometime in 50 or 100 years, we'll have to start dealing with those. And there'll be some some new set of things that we will that we will have mm-hmm. to do so it's an exciting process one step at a time right and right and and so you know and, and of course and, and the failure mode is annihilation yes so um uh, so you know we're um kind of uh, you know you, you might argue that you know each of the industrial revolutions that we've been through we sort of got through by the skin of our teeth yes right so um uh, there probably weren't very hominid, very many hominids uh, back, uh, you know, a few million years ago, uh, you know, when, you know, uh, you know when, when the when the spear was invented. Yes. Right. Um, uh, you know, equally, um, the population of the planet, uh, you know, when you went into the agricultural age, was again much smaller. Um, you know, going through the industrial revolution, there are plenty of opportunities for us. Uh, uh, to to have uh, catastrophic modes of failure, and some of them we've tried. So, um, uh, you know, we'll see. Yes. Um, are you are you optimistic about the future of humanity? Yeah, I'm always optimistic, but because I th- because I th- as I say, I think that if you look at the if you look at the fundamentals, um, uh, we live in a in a remarkably fortunate place. Yes. Um, so. Um, you know, the, you know, the universe is very cold, mm-hmm. 
And the average density of matter in the universe is about, you know, one atom per cubic meter. Yes. And almost all of it is hydrogen, a little bit of it is helium, right? It's very vast. So, so remarkably here, um, we're sitting on a planet which has everything that we could possibly need. Yes. There's a superabundance of all elements. There's plenty of energy. Um, uh, uh, you know, it's hard to imagine a better place to live. We're sort of extraordinarily fortunate about being here. So, so those, uh, those opportunities, I always think, are uh, so overwhelming um, that, you know, that one should win. Yes. Um, but what will one win? Well, I mean, I said, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, um, no, no, the, the, you know, what, what you would like is, you know, um, you know, prosperity and good health. Yes. So, uh, or is it essentially another form of survival or? Well, okay. So, um, uh, you know, organisms like us and all organisms, right, are, um, you know, designed to reproduce. Yes. So success for an organism is more. Yes. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, we may have to get to a point where we think that success isn't more. Mm -hmm. right. um, and uh, you may have seen the article in the New York Times actually a couple of days ago, which pointed out that you know, Earth's population may be about to peak. And it's perfectly mm -hmm. possible that if we settle down to uh, uh, reproductive rates, which we see in developing countries, that yes. in 500 years' time, the population of the Earth will be much smaller. Yes. Um, so you know, that's a, you know, you know, uh, a possibility that we might wish to plan for and aim for. Mm -hmm. Would you say that... Um that this change of mindset on um, reproduction or, or that uh, less is more or um, do you think this change in mindset defeats the purpose of the original so-called game where you try to survive and uh, well I mean maybe it does I mean you could argue it's grown up so I mean occasionally I like to argue that really um, what we ought to do is to get rid of the Y chromosome <laughs> Uh, because, uh, we probably don't need, uh, we, you know, uh, in a few more years, we probably won't actually need males to reproduce. Uh, um, you know, and the Y chromosome has things on it mm -hmm. that, you know, we, we, um, which are associated with successful features of tribes with spears mm -hmm. and violence. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, so, um, uh, so we may choose to evolve our own genome. And to a certain extent, we've already begun to evolve our own genome mm -hmm. uh, without by uh, by by breeding, some ways or another. Mm -hmm. um, and some of that is then built into societal choices about you know uh, family size and uh, you know uh, you know and, and the focus on um, you know uh, focus on things like you know music and the arts. Yes, that is an interesting idea. Right. Uh, but if we get rid of the Y chromosome, then slowly relying on uh, external factors for reproduction would would that be quite um, unnatural? 
Well, I mean, firstly, I don't know what's unnatural. Remember that there are plenty of species, actually, which are... Um, are, are unisex. Are unisex or hermaphrodite and actually can switch from one mode to another. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, so so it's it's certainly not unknown. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the, 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 no, the question is whether you would want to do things like that. You know, deliberately, probably not, but accidentally we may well do. That is interesting. Um, but those species achieved those forms as a means to enhance their survival. And are you yeah. suggesting that perhaps the human species will also as a means of survival um, acquire this way of reproduction? Well, maybe. I mean, that's one of those. I'm not, I'm not sure I'd... Um, I, mean, it may, I mean, it seems to me that probably getting rid of the Y chromosome solves uh, temporary <laughs> problems rather than necessarily uh-huh. long-term uh-huh. problems, right? But I mean, if you want less war, and less mm-hmm. violence, you should probably do that. Um, the the uh, um, uh, the, but the question is whether we can think as a species collectively. Coming back to, if you like, my view about what physics is about. Yes, you have a bunch of agents, mm-hmm. um, and they could be atoms, but they can also be people. They can be organisms. Yes, and you can give them a set of rules to behave, and the ways that they interact, and they will produce structures. Yes, and they will do certain things, right? And and so, so the collective output of that which we call society uh, is nonetheless built in to uh, to the way we interact, yes, and the way we think, and the way, uh, um, and all of those things are uh, changing immensely because the tools and means we have to interact are different from what they used to be in an agrarian society, um, and. Um, you know, that will produce a societal evolution, and that societal evolution will somehow get built back uh, no, into who we are. Um, so, so the, the uh, um, uh, you know, you, you talked about um, uh, science fiction. Uh, um, you know, you might have read the Foundation Trilogy. At some point, I have. Right? Yeah, exactly. yeah, right. Well, in that, of course, um, uh, that's based on the idea that there's such a subject of... Uh, so what was it called? A social history or something like yes. that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? Where you could predict the behaviors of very large numbers of people mm-hmm. uh, uh, just on that. Um, well, you know, modern AI is doing that. It, it, it is. Right? It so is. modern AI can now be applied to, uh, to, to learning about how, uh, uh, you know, how people will vote, uh, you know, what they will do, the kinds of outcomes which are there. So, so those things which uh, sounded fanciful are actually, you know, beginning to appear as, as you know, in some sense, as part of science. Yes, yes, and the future will get better in that sense. It, it'll, it'll be very exciting. It'll be very see. exciting. Whether it'll get better or not mm-hmm. depends on what you think is better. Right? That, that is that. true, yeah. um, and that varies between each, each and every individual. Yeah. It's quite subjective, but. Yeah. It's it's stimulating, to, uh, at least to me, it is. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I, I what I mean, I think it's worth thinking about lots of these problems in the same way, and this sort of comes back to why I and people like me do the kinds of things that we do. Yes. So that the, uh, as I say, fundamentally, you think about taking some maybe relatively simple rules mm-hmm. and asking what happens about that, what structures happen, what dynamics happens, what patterns happen, mm-hmm. um, uh, and that kind of thinking can be applied. No, not just in you know, hard materials, but also in biology, uh, and frankly, even in um, uh, uh, you, know, you know agents who are more complicated. Yes. Uh, 
would you say there is an end to science um, where people will finally understand all that there is to understand? Or do you think the process goes on? Um, 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 I don't know, okay. obviously, right? Mm -hmm. So, no, there is a hope yes. uh, among some of my colleagues, you know, the people who are studying for the fundamental equations of the universe, mm -hmm. that there is such a thing and you can learn it, right? Uh, and then if that's true, then at that level, we will have uh, understood everything. Right. Yes. Now that, in fact, no, that may be true. I think it's more likely that it's not, mm -hmm. um, because uh, um, you know there's probably a plethora of universes, and we happen to be in a particular one with a particular set of rules. But there's others. Yeah. 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 Right. So particular uh, right. solutions to like exactly um, right. So right. So um, uh, and um, so so it may not end even there. Yes. But as I was saying, even if you understand, you know, even if I can give you an equation, mm -hmm. um, the richness of that equation is such that the solutions will come out of it are kind of unpredictable. So, uh, so, so science of the kind of bottom up type, yes, um, I think is not likely to go away soon. Mm hmm. Or do you think that we will reach an upper bound of human understanding um, that will be confined by the mechanisms of our brain, of our consciousness? Ah, okay. Well, that's um, uh, okay. That, 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 again another interesting philosophical mm -hmm. question. I agree with you, right? So that the um, uh, um, you know, if I give you a mathematical proof, yes, that only a computer can read, is it a proof? I mean, there are examples of this, right? You know, that, so the full color theorem has been proved, but it's been proved, you know, with the aid of a computer. Yes. And, uh, um, and you sort of have to trust that the computer got it right because there's no way you can inspect it. Yes. Well, um, in a more degenerate sense, it, it's called trusting the mathematician yeah. <laughs> and using their results. Um, maybe yeah. Because, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. So, so, so I think that the, the, um, um, but, but, uh, but I think, you know, if we're successful, um, all of those extra things will just turn into tools. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, I mean, it used to be if I say, well, I see something, I could actually really see it with my own eyes directly, right? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so if I give you a microscope, so you can now see something that you couldn't see with your own eyes, but it's a tool. It, it is. If, right. You, you know, you, you can still comprehend it, but you, but you, but you, but you've got a mental representation of what's going on, which isn't direct. And so one can go through many levels of that, I think, where um, we will interact with more and more complex tools and, um, and in some sense, you know, become comfortable with them so that we know what understanding means. Mm -hmm. um, uh, now, you know, I don't know whether that ends. Yes. Um, you know, AI is kind of in that mode at the moment. Mm -hmm. I see. Uh, and so uh, eventually our powers of harnessing tools will expand with our, our, our existing knowledge and they will also in turn aid our understanding of knowledge and to acquire knowledge in that sense. Right. 
Right. So, the, so, the, so this is back to your question about: you know, Is it engineering or is it science? Yes. And uh, the answer, and the answer is, is, is it's always both. Right? Mm-hmm. So that the um, uh, so you know quantum mechanics is, a, is is very exotic, and we're not quite sure why quantum mechanics works the way it does. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're beginning to build tools which rely on you know computers that rely on quantum mechanical spooky things yes. to be able to uh, do calculations and make things work. Yes, um, and um, uh, and out of building those tools, we will discover new things. Mm-hmm. Right. Fascinating. Well, what would be as our final question? What would be a nugget of wisdom you would give to uh, aspiring? scientists, people interested in contributing to the knowledge reservoir of humanity. Um, I mean, I think you know, one, one thing to say is that there's a lot to do. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's maybe uh, at least as important, but maybe more important now than it has ever, ever been. Yes. Because uh, the problems that we're facing um, will need science to solve them. Um, and uh, 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 no, and in particular, no. it's not yet done, um, no. and we need lots of people coming in with um, different views, different ways of thinking about things, uh, different backgrounds. Um, uh, you know, science isn't a monolith; it isn't something that you learn and then everybody parrots it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, science comes in because people come in and they look at a problem and they look at it from a different way. Yes. Uh, and they come up with a different set of thoughts and a different set of answers, and that gets melded together. Uh, so, um, so the so the more diverse group of thinkers we get in for that, the the better we will all be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's fun, by the way. It's what um, uh, Richard Feynman called the joy of finding things out. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, so so you know the point where you know you discover something. It may not be deep and profound but you realize that you know this and nobody else does and that joy overcomes that 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 that, that is a that, no that's 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 what one works for in doing this to just the to say that the discovery is um, uh, uh, a tremendous joy in its own right well professor littlewood thank you so much for this conversation you've brought so much to the table for us to digest and to understand thank you for your understandings and insights well, no, thank you very much. Thank you for uh, thank you for doing this and uh, for running this podcast series and um, uh, being you know energetic and interested. And, and you too, I hope, will become uh, a great scientist or a great mathematician. I think you've got uh, already a good set of the problems to ask. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of David Talks with. Speaking with Professor Littlewood was a fascinating experience that I was blessed with, and I endeavor to bring as much knowledge to the table as I can through our conversation. Again, thank you for listening. Have a great day and stay tuned for the next episode. Goodbye. 